You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production. There are a few reasons that nobody will forget the events of June 6th, 2021. First among those reasons is the initial shock and horror. It's being called a premeditated mass murder, the worst ever in London, Ontario's history. The second reason, though, is the outpouring of love and support for the decimated family and London, Ontario's Muslim community as a whole. They started at the site of the fatal attack, then walked more than six kilometers to the mosque where the family prayed. They carried with them the memory of four family members struck down by a driver police say was filled with hate for their faith. And the third reason comes this week as arguments begin in the trial of the accused murderer. This trial is important beyond reasons of simple justice. That's because the man stands accused not just of murder, but of deliberate acts of terrorism, charges that make the case much more complicated and quite rare in this country, especially in their application to a crime not tied to Islamic extremism. London's Muslim community wants this trial to send a message to those who target victims because of their faith. In applying these terrorism charges, the Crown appears to have the same motivation. This trial will be watched closely, not just in the London community, but across the country. It may end up being the first trial in Canada to find that far-right white supremacist hate is legally terrorism. So what can we expect to hear this week in a courtroom in Windsor, Ontario? And just how important will the outcome be? I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. This is The Big Story. Wendy Gillis is a crime reporter for the Toronto Star. She looked ahead to the trial, which she will be covering. Hi, Wendy. Hi, thanks for having me. You're most welcome. Why don't, um, I mean, this is this is really unpleasant, but just to, to review the facts, can you tell us what took place uh, June 6th, 2021 in London, Ontario? Yeah, this is uh, one of the worst alleged hate-motivated attacks that we've seen in this country. And so I'm sure most people are familiar with sort of the bare bones of what happened. But this was a family, the Afsal family, who were out on a Sunday night stroll. They were walking outside. Um, as you remember, this was still in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic. So a lot of us were going on these walks. Mm-hmm. And while they were going on a walk in their neighborhood in London, Ontario, they were struck by a truck that was traveling at a very high rate of speed. Five of them were hit, four of them were killed. And it was three generations of that family that died. Only the nine-year-old son survived. And obviously it was a horrific thing that happened and it only became worse once we found out more about what was alleged, which was that this was a deliberate attack, that this was motivated by hate, according to the London police. And that was something that they said very quickly after this. So within 24 hours, you know, we had someone who was arrested and charged and facing very serious allegations of first-degree murder. Mm -hmm. And very soon after, we know that prosecutors made additional allegations against the accused that this was motivated by terrorism. 
And that's a lot of what we're going to talk about today, um, these additional charges, what they could mean for the trial, what kind of precedent uh, they might set. But since we're going to end up spending time uh, talking about the alleged killer, maybe first, just give us a sense um, of the family. This is a family that was loved in the community. There really was, like, in the in the days afterwards, um, just a tremendous sense of loss, but also of support. Yeah, and I'm so glad that you asked this question because it's always my preference in talking about these things to put sort of at the center the victims, mm-hmm. uh, the people that we we lost. Because you know sometimes when we talk about these stories, um, they can they can get lost a little bit. And I always want us to remember them sort of first and foremost. This was it's difficult to overstate Jordan, an absolutely beloved family. You mm-hmm. know, within a few hours of starting to work on this story. I had so many people who were coming out and saying, you know, that they were pillars of the community in London, you know, specifically the the Muslim community. They were from Pakistan, but had really established roots in London, starting with uh, Talat, the oldest. Um, She was the grandmother, really artistic. You know, I've seen some of her paintings, incredibly talented. Salman and Medea were the mother and father of Yumna, who was the youngest who was killed here. Salman was a physiotherapist, really well known as kind of a gardener with the neighbors told us about, you know, how much he relished being out in his garden and um, having flowers. And Medea was pursuing a PhD in environmental engineering. She was looking into how to clean soils. And Yumna was also, like her grandmother, very artistic. Mm. She had designed a a space-themed mural in her um, Muslim school, and it remains there to this day. So very hard, as I said, to overstate just kind of how, how loved they were. Right now, we're talking on a Friday afternoon. People are hearing this episode on Monday morning. Where does the case stand right now in the courts and what will be happening this week? Yeah, so this has been moved to Windsor, I should say, because, you know, obviously it happened in London and a decision was made to move the trial to Windsor, which is about two hours away from London. The reasons for that move can't be reported right now. They are under a publication ban. Hmm. But in general, we do know that sometimes trials are moved because a selection is going to happen of jurors and to get the most impartial jurors possible, which of course we want in a trial, um, sometimes trials are moved. So that jury selection happened this past week, which means now that the trial can begin in earnest. So Monday, we will start to get a sense of what this case is about. We will really hear more about what the prosecution is alleging, you know, more about what the defense strategy is, perhaps, and so much more about, you know, how this allegedly came to be and what the allegations are against Nathaniel Veltman, who is the accused in this case. We know that the trial is expected to last around three months. It's been sort of said that it'll be, you know, 12 to 14 weeks. And so we really are in this for the long haul. And that Mm -hmm. length suggests that there's going to be just a huge uh, wealth of evidence that's coming forward. Maybe just to set us up before we do get uh, more information and more evidence, what do we know about 
Veltman, and what specifically is he charged with? You mentioned terrorism is in play here. Yes. So Nathaniel Veltman, who is now 22 years old, you know, lived in the London area at the time, originally from a small town called Strathroy. He is charged with four counts of first-degree murder. He's also charged with one count of attempted murder for the injuries that I mentioned at the top to the nine-year-old boy who is the lone survivor here. And what happened a few days after those initial charges were laid was that uh, federal prosecutors laid terror enhancements onto those charges. So what that means is that they're alleging not only that um, Nathaniel Veltman planned deliberate murder, but that it was motivated by a terrorist intent. Basically, that means that they are alleging that there was a motive behind this um, that was either political, religious, or ideological, and that um, there was an intent to strike fear into um, the public with, with this act. What are the implications of those charges for the prosecution and their case? Because these, as I understand them, are are pretty unusual in Canada. Yeah, just to lay the groundwork a little bit, these terror enhancements came about after the 9-11 terror attacks. And we really, until recently, only seen them laid in cases of alleged Islamic extremism. So think of Al-Qaeda or ISIS-related allegations. And Mm -hmm. I know, having spoken to some experts in this field, that essentially it's easier to make a case when you are alleging that someone is connected to a fairly well-known terrorist group like ISIS. And so up until very recently, we'd really only seen these type of allegations related to terrorism used against that kind of activity. It's not until more recently that we've seen that sort of definition of terrorism expand. And so just as one example, in Toronto, we've recently had a case that involved a youth who was charged in connection to a stabbing in a massage parlor, a fatal stabbing. And a judge recently found that that was an act of terrorism because that youth was motivated by the incel ideology, which Mm -hmm. is basically a misogynistic ideology that's connected to sort of a right-wing idea around hatred of of women and a celebration of violence against against them. Um, And so we are starting to see a broadening of the definition of terrorism. And certainly this case is going to be sort of central in terms of testing that. What will prosecutors have to do uh, to prove this that they wouldn't have to do in a regular situation or even if uh, the accused was connected, you know, as you mentioned, to um, an actual known terror group? Like, I imagine this stuff is kind of pretty tricky to prove beyond the shadow of a doubt. Yeah, you're absolutely right, Jordan. So essentially, you know, prosecutors are not just going to have to prove guilt in a case, which is usually, you know, what they have to do. They have to show that there was a motivation behind it and that there was an intention behind it. And that can be really challenging, but that is, you know, as I said, what they have to do to prove terrorism, that it was motivated by religion, politics, or ideology, and then that it intended to strike fear 
or intimidate a population segment of the population. And so to be able to do that, we might see the type of evidence we're not used to seeing in a trial. That might be something like online activity or anything that can kind of show a motive and a thinking, an ideology, which is, you know, what they are trying to prove here. Have you spoken to people in the community in the lead up to this trial now? And what are they looking for? Like on one hand, they might want to see justice served. On the other hand, it must be pretty traumatizing to have all of this come back uh, two years later. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. You know, I have talked to several people within London's Muslim community in the lead up to this trial. Obviously, yes, there is a great amount of interest There's a great amount of hope that there will be an ending here that can bring some measure of justice, you know, although that's such a hard thing to even think about. You know, I did talk to one relative who is saying that the family is really looking for an ending to this trial that would send a very strong message and that there will be some deterrence here around not just Islamophobic hate, but all types of hate, that that's just not going to be something that we allow in this society and that that, the court will send a message to that effect. Are the terrorism charges meaningful to them? I think it's hard to say. I mean, I I think it's meaning, it's they're very meaningful to the community in terms of just to, to mention briefly another case, you know, Canadians will be well aware of what happened in Quebec City, the mosque shooting a few years ago that killed six people inside of the Quebec City Mosque, you know, we know a lot more about what happened there. It was motivated by white supremacist ideology, but we did not see terrorism charges laid there. And that was hugely hurtful to, you know, many members of the Muslim community, Mm -hmm. in part because of what I was saying before about how, you know, there really only was one type of terrorist activity that was deemed to be something that merited this type of court treatment. And so, Obviously, it's incredibly symbolic to have them lead here in a similar, you know, what's alleged to be a very similar case. Is that the precedent at stake here? Because we've covered on this podcast over the past couple of years, you know, the rise in hate attacks, especially um, from, you know, a white supremacist ideology. And is this maybe the first step towards bringing some extra weight to those crimes that are committed? So, I mean, I think what is challenging is that this may not necessarily result in any additional sentencing. So this is, just to explain that for a second, you know, a case involving first degree murder. And so if there is a conviction on that count, it's already an automatic life sentence um, with no chance of parole for 25 years. Right. And so it is in some ways a bit more symbolic, but we will you know, have the airing of the the prosecution's allegations here, which for the first time will have a trial on whether, you know, this alleged activity constitutes terrorism in this country. And I think that that is incredibly powerful and it's going to be an important precedent to set moving forward for sure. I want to ask you, and you may not know much about this yet because obviously the arguments haven't begun, but what kind of testimony we might hear um, in an attempt to prove uh, that he was ideologically motivated? Like, what kinds of 
witnesses might be called? What kinds of evidence might we hear in an attempt to prove that? Yeah, we'll certainly get a better lay of the land, I expect, on Monday in terms of, you know, what we can expect from the prosecution's case, who is going to be called, what, if any, you know, expert witnesses we might hear from. Certainly, it's very typical to have, you know, direct witnesses who may have been at the scene, you know, obviously police witnesses, investigators that are involved. That's pretty typical in a criminal trial. Beyond that, it's anyone's guess in terms of sort of what we're going to hear and who we're going to hear from. Certainly, you know, there's a lot of conjecture about, like I say, possible expert witnesses being called in to talk about, you know, ideology. Beyond that, uh, it's it's very hard to say, Jordan, in part, because as I say, this is a trial that is, you know, the first of its kind in, in some ways. Hmm. We haven't really seen this play out in court before. And Like I say, it's probably, you know, that we can tell from the length of the trial that there's going to be a lot of evidence. We just don't quite know what that looks like yet. I just want to ask, because we've mentioned them sort of simultaneously the entire time, the first-degree murder charges and the terrorism charges, does that mean that if he's not convicted of terrorism, he can still be convicted of first-degree murder? Like, how do they break these down? Yes, you're correct there. So... The prosecutors can make their case that this was motivated by some terrorist ideology. If the jury is not convinced of that, they can still find Nathaniel Valdman guilty of first-degree murder or attempted murder without that terror enhancement laid on top. And so we don't know really which way this is going to go. Certainly that added onus that's been put on prosecutors that I've written about other media have written about, that's attracted a lot of attention in part because, as I said, this is unusual, it's unprecedented, but ultimately it could just be another first-degree murder case where there's a finding of guilt, but there isn't the additional element of terrorism if the jury is not convinced that it met that threshold to prove it. We've spent most of our time so far uh, talking about, you know, how to prove intent and ideological motivation. But uh, since these charges can be separate, is there anything that the trial could answer that we don't know yet about the attack itself and, you know, what happened around it? Certainly we'll find out more about the actual incident. As I was saying earlier, usually there'll be witnesses, police witnesses, people who saw it with their own eyes, who will be called to give evidence. And we haven't had a really good sense of exactly what happened. You know, it's been described in in pretty basic terms. So in some ways, yes, we'll we'll, we'll find out more about the actual incident itself. Because as you say, that is something that, that can be very separate. You know, the accused in this case, did he do what they allege at the mm-hmm. very basic? That does need to be proven. Last question. Uh, You're heading to Windsor to cover this trial. How do you feel? What are you expecting? This is a big one. Yeah, there's always a little bit of trepidation before covering something that is going to be hard, right? I mean, it's, it's emotional for anybody. This is far more about the relatives, the London Muslim community and the greater Canadian Muslim community. But I think for anybody who is going to be hearing these um, details and allegations, it's going to be really challenging. Mm -hmm. I will say, 
you know, for me, I think it's incredibly important to cover these cases mm-hmm. pretty extensively because we need to understand what happened. I fundamentally believe that the airing of the facts in this case will need to be done in a in a really thorough manner. And I do feel privileged to be able to do that because I think it's incredibly important. You know, we are the eyes and ears in this case. And I think Canadians hopefully will be following along because number one, we can never forget that this happened. And number two, we have to understand why it happened. And so I think hopefully, you know, this trial will give some measure of information that can help us understand what exactly went wrong. And, you know, I talked about justice earlier. To some extent, getting some basic information about what happened, what's alleged, that's a measure of justice in some ways. And then from there, we move forward. Wendy, thank you so much for this. Um, Good luck at the trial, and uh, it'll be really interesting to watch. Thanks very much for having me. Wendy Gillis, reporting in the Toronto Star. That was The Big Story. For more, you can head to thebigstorypodcast.ca. You can offer us any feedback that you have by finding us on Twitter at TheBigStoryFPN, by sending us an email at hello at TheBigStoryPodcast.ca, or by picking up the phone and calling us 416-935-5935. We've gotten some amazing story ideas from listeners this week. We put them on our sked. We're looking for the right people to talk to. If you've got a question you think we could help explore or answer, please get in touch with us. You can find The Big Story everywhere you get podcasts, absolutely everywhere. And if your app lets you do it, make sure you rate, review, like, follow, subscribe, recommend, whatever it is. The more you share this show, the more listeners we get, the longer we'll be here telling big stories. Thanks for listening. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. We'll talk tomorrow.